Well, if you've got your Bibles, grab them and turn to chapter 13 of the Gospel of John. And we're going to start in verse 21, and we're going to go all the way through chapter 14, verse 14. Now, last week, um, Mitchell took us through the washing of the disciples' feet, that story we're all familiar with, uh, almost too familiar with, because we've heard it so many times, we just blow right past it. And we're going to pick it up from there. But before we begin, I want to establish some context, because in order to understand this last week of Jesus' life, you really have to know when it's taking place. What's the general context of everything that's going on? And sometimes it can get confusing. So I put together this little chart that helps me understand where we are and where we're going. And so it starts out showing you that the really the First three years of Jesus' life were covered in chapters 1 through 10. We talked about this week one of this series. Then we saw chapter 11 covered basically three months of his life. And so what you see, I've called this John applying the slow motion effect. It's like he's slowing down the narrative and he's covering less and less time, but he's taking more time to do it, more chapters to cover just days instead of years. So we see in chapter 12, he covered just two weeks. Now we're going to be in chapters 13 through 17, and it's one day. Everything we're going to study over the next weeks is just one day out of Jesus' life. And chapter 13 and 14 are part of that one day. And that's, again, really important for us to understand. And then finally, he's going to take the last four chapters to unpack three days of Jesus' life. So here's what's going on. And, and I never really thought about this. I never really studied this until preparing for this lesson but what you see is, again, John collapsing the timeline. He's slowing everything down because this to him is the, the most important part of Jesus' life. He spent three and a half years on this planet, but these last days, particularly the last four days, are the most important days according to John, and you'll see why. So what he does is he skips three entire days. You know, we're in that, what's called that Passion Week, the last seven days of Jesus' life. John's going to ignore three whole days which is kind of amazing. He's the only one of the gospel writers who does this. He skips. He just, just blows right past him. And he's got a reason for doing so. In chapter 12, verse 36, he's, it says that he, Jesus, hid himself. You remember, he had had his last confrontation, really, with the Pharisees, and then he hid himself. He set himself apart. He, he left their vicinity. He wasn't going to argue with them anymore. No more debates. No more answering their silly questions, trying to confuse him and trying to convict him. He just vacated the premises. So that's what's going on in this passage. And so we pick it up again in chapter 13, which Mitchell covered last week. But I just want to, again, set the context. Here's what it says. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He's... he's establishing for us that we're in that last week, it's the week of the Passover, a very important celebration for the Jews. And then it says, during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus, something happens. Now we know what happens is there's the washing of the disciples' feet, but what's significant here is this reference to the supper, that this is part of the Passover meal. And what's really interesting is that John doesn't spend a whole lot of time talking about that Passover meal. Now, part of that's probably because his audience, the people he's writing to, were predominantly Gentiles. And so the whole, uh, their interest in the Passover was going to be minimal at best. And so he really just kind of 
overshoots that and he, he only hits some of the high points that he feels is important to what he's trying to say in this book. So we know it's the Passover. They're taking the Passover meal. It's Thursday. We've already moved into the last four days of that Passion Week and the last four days of Jesus' life on earth. And so these chapters, 13 through 17, are going to tell us everything that happens. Well, not everything, because again, he's, skip, he's skipping a lot. He's leaving out a lot. But it's going to tell us, from John's perspective, the most important parts of what takes place during these days. So here's what he left out. Now, I've given you this in your notes as a more comprehensive chart, but I just want to kind of establish again all that John leaves out. So on Monday, he curses the fig tree, and we're not going to get into that. He weeps over Jerusalem. We know that he goes in and he cleanses the temple for the second time. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He disrupts everything because they've turned his father's house into basically a marketplace. Then he returns to Bethany. Bethany is that little town two and a half miles east of Jerusalem where the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha is, and it hits his headquarters during these last four days. Then on Tuesday, he teaches the lesson of the fig tree. He sees a fig tree that's got leaves but no fruit, and he, he curses it. So he's going to teach the disciples a lesson. He teaches them parables, which none of which are in, recorded in John's gospel. He gives the woes to the Pharisees. He prophesies concerning his return. And again, John doesn't deal with any of these. He's just gone right past Monday, Tuesday. He's gone past Wednesday when Judas commits himself to betray Jesus, and then he picks it up with what? The Passover on Thursday. So we've gone from Sunday to Thursday in John's gospel. And we know that the disciples go and prepare for the Passover. They share the Passover meal, which he doesn't give us any details concerning. But he does tell us about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And Mitchell made the point last week that this is the only gospel writer that includes this story. It's, it's important to John because he feels like it's important to his audience. So we're going to pick it up there. Now, there's a whole lot more that takes place in John's gospel when it pertains to Thursday. And we're going to see that as we move forward. But we're going to pick it up in verse 21, as I said. And it says, after saying these things, what things? what he had said to the disciples after washing their feet. Follow my example, follow my lead, do as I've done unto you. He says, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, this is a really interesting part of the story because it's another passage in Scripture that we're so familiar with that, that we don't spend any time really thinking about it. But you've, you've got to get into the disciples' sandals and understand they're hearing this information for the first time. And you're going to see by their reaction, it was totally unexpected. They, they had no idea that this was going to happen. And they're shocked by it. So he says, he's troubled in spirit. We've looked at this, this phrase before. Jesus is troubled because of all that's about to happen. He's troubled because of what Judas is about to do. He's troubled because of what it's going to lead to in his own life. He's going to have to go to the cross. He's going to have to suffer all kinds of torment in order to accomplish the will of his father. So he's troubled because he knows that this guy, Judas, one of the 12, who he chose, is going to betray him. So again, think about what's going through the minds of those disciples, the 11, but also Judas, as he sits there, I can just imagine the beads of sweat in his forehead as he 
hears Jesus utter these words because he doesn't know that Jesus knows. And he's getting exposed as what he is. He, he's a traitor. He's a betrayer. And we know that Jesus is saddened. He's troubled in spirit, but he's not surprised. This didn't shock him. He, he knew all about it. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Every phase of this story he was aware of and prepared for. Why? Because it's all part of the Father's plan. It's, it's, it's what had been established from before the foundation of the world. Jesus, before he even came to earth in the form of a baby, was aware of the plan and went knowing everything that was going to happen. Here's the amazing thing, though, and I think part of what troubled Jesus is that he had spent three years of his life pouring into Judas just as much as he had to these other men. So consider this. He had shown Judas the same unconditional love that he had shown to the other disciples, Peter, John, James. He didn't treat him any differently, even though he knew that the day was coming that he would betray him. He treated him like all the other disciples. We know that he taught the same truths to him as he taught to John and Peter and James and Philip and Bartholomew. He, he taught them all the truths that came from his heavenly father. And then finally, he even washed Judas's feet. He stooped down, he took on the role of a servant, and he washed the feet of the very man who was going to betray him. So yes, he's, he's hurt, he's troubled, he's saddened, but he's not surprised. But guess who is? The disciples. They are blown away at this statement that one of you is going to betray me. Now, you can imagine when he doesn't qualify, he just says, one of you, immediately they begin to think, which one of us? They even begin to think, is it me? Am I going to be the one to betray you? They, they, they are totally confused by what Jesus is telling them. It, it seems impossible. It seems like this can't happen. They didn't see it coming. There was no way they could see this coming. Even their knowledge of Judas was minimal. They, they didn't mistrust Judas. They didn't see Judas as the obvious one. No one went, well, it's obviously Judas. No, they're all like, is it me? Is it me? Because it's so unexpected that, that one of them would betray Jesus. So what happens next? Well, look at verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. In other words, we don't have a clue who he's talking about. One of the disciples whom Jesus loved, this is John referring to himself in the third person, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. Now, Mitchell didn't really get into this last week, but when, when they reclined at table, they, they didn't sit in chairs. They, they laid down, they put their left elbow down, and they laid with their head on the chest of the person to their left. So it's just kind of this domino effect around the table. So here's John reclining at Jesus' side. He was on Jesus' right side. And it says, so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. Peter wants to know. And so he motions to John, knowing that he's the disciple whom Jesus loved. Hey, ask Jesus to tell us who it is. So what happens? Well, John leans back and he asks Jesus, Lord, who is it? See, they don't know. They're unaware of who this culprit is that's about to betray Jesus. And Jesus said, it's he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So Jesus is going to give them a visible sign. He's going to betray this man, this individual, by handing him a piece of bread dipped in either wine or some kind of a sauce. 
So when it says, when he had dipped it, when he had taken that morsel and dipped it, he gave it to Judas. Now this seems to indicate that Judas was pretty close, so Judas was probably just to his left in what would have been a seat of honor. Those seats right and left would have been seats of honor. For Jesus to be able to hand this to Judas, he had to be very close. So he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Iscariot. So he exposes the betrayer. But it's interesting that nobody jumped up. Peter didn't jump up, he's always impulsive, but he didn't do anything. They didn't tackle Judas, they didn't uh, express any shock. It, it's, it's just a very calm moment for some reason. And I think it's because they're totally blown away that Jesus had taken this morsel of bread and he had dipped it in sauce and then he had handed it to his betrayer. See, Jesus knew, and he had already told them this was going to happen. Just verses earlier, he says, right after he had washed his feet, he said, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. Now listen to what he says. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. This is before he exposes Judas, and he's telling them, and he's using Old Testament prophecies to let them know what's about to happen. It's a fulfillment of prophecy. He who ate the bread has lifted up his heel. Here's where he's quoting, Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. See, everything Jesus is doing is in fulfillment of the will of God. It's in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that had been written hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And, and this is his way of informing his disciples that this is all within the will of God, that there's no reason to be shocked, there's no reason to be surprised. When he handed that piece of bread to Judas, it fulfilled the will of God, just like everything else that's happening in this text is fulfilling the will of God. So he gave it to Judas and it says, after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to them, to him, what you're going to do, do it quickly. It's at this moment that Judas is literally possessed of, inhabited by demonic spirits and he goes to do the will of Satan. And he begins the process of betraying Jesus. But look at verse 28. No one at the table knew why he said this to him. They still don't understand what he's about to do. They think he's going to go out and buy something for the rest of the feast. They, he's the keeper of the treasury of the disciples. They, they still don't get it that he's going to betray Jesus. And once again, we have to cut these guys some slack because none of this was expected. It was way outside their expectations of who Jesus was and who the Messiah was and what he would do when he came. None of this fit their paradigm. And so they really don't understand. So after he gives this bread to Judas, it says he immediately went out under the influence of the enemy. And look what it says, and it was night. I, I love John because he's, he's very careful with his wording. And right here, he's, he's letting us know he's foreshadowing something. And he's packing into this little phrase so much symbolism because Jesus has talked a whole lot about night and day, light and darkness. Let's just go back and, and refresh our memories so that we understand the symbolism that John's saying. When that guy walked out of that room, it was dark. Now, it had been dark before. It didn't suddenly go dark outside. 
it's like John recognized that the darkness that Jesus had been prophesying about had finally come. Look at verse nine, chapter nine, verse four. Jesus said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. There's a shift coming. There's a change coming. Things are gonna get remarkably and dramatically different in just days. And here we're seeing it happen. How about this one in chapter 11, verses nine through 10? Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbled because the light is not in him. You see, Jesus has been telling them for days and weeks and months now that he is the light of the world. Chapter one of this entire gospel started out with that proclamation by John that Jesus was the light of the world. But now we see darkness coming. And in chapter 12, verse 35, Jesus says, my light will shine for you just a little longer. This is his word to the disciples. Walk in the light while you can so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they're going. And what a picture that is of Judas as he walks out into the darkness, totally blinded by Satan and doing the will of the enemy rather than the will of God. See, darkness had come. The shift has begun. The end is imminent. And what Jesus has come to do is about to take place. So it says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the son of man glorified and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. You see how many times he mentions glory, glorification? See, Jesus came to do the will of his father and in doing the will of his father, he glorified his father. And this is the most important part of the job that he had been given. The miracles he did, all the healings, the messages he gave, all of that is important. But had he not done this, had he not taken this next step, it would not have brought final glory to God and he would not be glorified. In other words, if he doesn't go to the cross, he doesn't get glorified and God doesn't get glorified because the redemption narrative dead ends. So that's why this is so important that he was going to bring glory to the Father by doing the will of the Father, which included him going to the cross. So then he tells his disciples, my little children, my sons, my, really my, my babies, these, these guys meant so much to him, but he looked at them like children, innocent, um, unknowing, ill-prepared for what they're about to face. And he says, yet a little while I'm with you, Time is running out. He says, you'll seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so I now also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. Now, once again, think about these guys. They believed him to be the Messiah. They were hoping that he was gonna set up his kingdom on earth. And now he's telling them, where I'm going, you can't come. They have just spent three and a half years with this man, going everywhere he went, eating all their meals with him, depending on him for everything. And now he says, where I'm going, you can't come. And notice that he says, this is exactly what I told the Jews, the religious leaders. I told them the very same thing. And, and we saw this back in chapter eight in one of his many confrontations with these men. He said to them, the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, the high priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, he says, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. Very same phrase. And he said to them, you're from below, I'm from above. You're from this world, I am from another world. 
I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, that didn't win over the Pharisees. It didn't suddenly turn on the light and they go, we believe. No, it made them angry. It's what led to them determining to put him to death. But see, he told these religious leaders the very same thing, that you cannot come. And then he tells the disciples several weeks later, you also can't come. And and let's just stop and think about that. Well, if the religious leaders can't come and the disciples can't come, who can come? What's he trying to tell them? See, for these Jewish religious leaders, this was going to be a permanent situation. They would never come. They would never place their faith in him. They would continue to refuse to believe all the way up until his death. And then when he rose again, they refused to believe that. And then from that point forward, they continued to disbelieve, even though he appeared to hundreds of people after his resurrection. So they would refuse to believe. They would not be born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus, he would have to be if he wanted to enter the kingdom of God. And so Jesus told them, as a result, you're going to die in your sins. You won't believe. You won't be born from above. And so you will die in your sins. These self-righteous religious leaders who prided themselves on their hyper-spirituality were going to die in their sins. But it's just fascinating to me that he uses the same phrase when he's talking to the disciples in that upper room. He says, you can't come either. Where I'm going, you can't come. But see, for them, it's a temporary condition. And this is really important for us to understand because Jesus has to go to the cross. He's got to go, and then he's going to be resurrected. He's going to return to his father's side, and he tells these guys, you can't go with me. Where I'm going, you can't come. You're not going to take the path that I take. You're not going to go to the cross. You're not going to die. You're not going to be miraculously resurrected, and you're not ascending up into heaven. I am. You won't. Now, they don't get any of that. All they get is, why can't we go? But here's what we do know because of the rest of the Gospel of John and the rest of the Synoptic Gospels. They eventually do believe him to be who he is. They eventually are born from above. They receive the Holy Spirit, and because of that, they'll be with him. But for the time being, during their lifetimes, they're all going to remain below. See, they're going to get to go. They're going to receive eternal life. But for this time, they've got to stay on earth. Jesus is going to leave. And in just a few more days, we're going to look at chapter 14, where he talks about I'm going to send you something. I'm going to send you someone. I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. But for right now, these men don't get it. Simon Peter, as always, speaks up and he says, Lord, where are you going? Where are you going? Why can't we go there? That's really the sub-message of the question. He says, why can't we come wherever you're going? We want to stay with you. We want to be with you. And Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. See, that that word's important. You'll eventually follow me, but right now you can't. You're not going to be able to go where I'm going, but you will follow afterward. See, something had to happen. Jesus had to go to the cross. Jesus had to die. Jesus had to take on the sins of the world, and then he had to be buried and resurrected and returned to his Father. All of this had to happen before these men could ever enter into his kingdom. So Jesus then goes on and he says, hey guys, 
don't be troubled. Man, what an understatement. Don't worry. Don't, don't be troubled. It's almost like what, what we do to people who we meet who are suffering and we say all things work together for good. It, this sounds so simplistic. But see, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Believe what God has sent me to do. Believe in what I'm about to do and what will be done. Believe. Don't stop believing. And then he tells them some really good news, which I think went right over their heads. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will take you to myself. I will come again and take you to myself. I'm leaving, but I'm coming back. Now, again, this, this was not in their, on their radar screen. They didn't understand what he's talking about. He's leaving. He's going someplace. They can't come, but I'm coming back. Oh, and I'm preparing a place for you. And I'm going to come back, and I'm going to take you there. And where I am, you may be also. See, this is not a permanent separation. It was for the religious leaders, but not for the disciples. And then he says, and you know the way to where I'm going. Jesus promises these men his return. I will come back. I will come again. And that's the hope of every one of us as believers that Jesus has told us that he will come back. He's gone back to heaven, but he will return one day for us. See, God's timing is not the same as ours. And that's really hard for us to, to not only understand, but to accept that God works differently than we do. And these poor disciples were stuck on this temporal terrestrial plane. They're stuck on earth. They can't help thinking about earthly things. They're still thinking about an earthly kingdom. And this idea of Jesus dying and resurrecting, even though he's told them about it multiple times, they can't fathom that. Even though they saw Lazarus resurrected, restored from death to life, they can't understand what Jesus is talking about because they're stuck on this earthly plane, this horizontal plane. And as Jews, they had no concept of the church age, this age in which we live, which would begin with the coming of the Holy Spirit and the launching of the church. They, they didn't have a concept for that. They didn't have a concept for people of every tribe, nation, and tongue coming to faith in Jesus Christ and becoming part of this thing called the body of Christ, the church. So all of this escaped them. And the timing was not what they were interested in. They wanted him to set up his kingdom now. Remember, Peter said, why can't we go with you now? But it wasn't time. It, it wasn't, they weren't ready for it. See, Peter says, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. This is Peter, as he always does, shooting off his mouth, putting his tongue in gear before his brain's engaged, and he says something that he's going to regret. He says, I'm going to lay down my life for you. I, I would die for you. Just let me follow you. And Jesus says, will you lay down your life for me? Will you really? See, he's, all he wants to do is he wants to follow Jesus. I want to go now. I want this to happen now. And that's when Jesus breaks the bad news. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Here's Peter bragging about his willingness to die and yet Jesus tells him, you're going to deny me. You're not even going to make it through the night without denying me three separate times. You tell me you're going to lay down your life. See, Peter is not ready for heaven. 
And reality is, he's not even ready for earth. He's not ready for the life that's about to come. He's not prepared for all that he's about to face. He, he doesn't understand all the events that are going to happen as Jesus gets arrested, as Jesus gets put on trial, and as he gets taken to the cross, and as he dies, Peter's not prepared. See, he's not yet born from above. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. He doesn't have the awareness, the ability to understand these things, but he will, given time. But for right now, he doesn't have the, the, the power to fulfill his will. He, he wants to do the right thing, but he can't. And really, the next day, on Friday night, Jesus will say to him, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Peter, you so mean what you say, but you don't have the capacity to pull it off. See, he didn't have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit. He meant well, but he didn't have what it takes to pull it off. But in time, he would. Jesus had to finish what he came to do. And, and Jesus, when he made this statement that you know where I'm going, you know the way to where I'm going, Thomas jumps in, doubting Thomas. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. We don't have a clue. How, how can we know the way? See, he, he's, he's now confused. He's, he's now frustrated. And he wants to know, where are you going? Peter wanted to know, why can't we go? This guy wants to know, where are you going? Maybe we can find a map. Maybe we can use, you know, GPS and we can get there. Just tell us where, because we don't understand. We want to know the way. And, and, and I love this because it, it, their questions always sets up exactly what they need to hear from Jesus. So he wants to know the way, and yet Thomas is stuck on a physical plane as well. He's thinking about a physical destination and a literal pathway to get there. How do I get from A to Z? Where are you going? And what's the pathway to get there? He's stuck on the wrong thing. And, and Jesus is about to reveal something that's far more important. It's, it's about a change of their identity, not their location. That's going to be the important part that Jesus is trying to let them know. And it's going to take his death to make it happen. And I love that it sets up this this classic statement from Jesus that we're all familiar with. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You know, the, Thomas says, we don't know the way. And it's like Jesus is saying, yes, you do. It's me. You've known the way for, four, for three and a half years. You just have refused to accept it. I am the way. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. This is almost like a, a little slight that Jesus uses, if, if you would under, have understood who I am and what I'd come to do and let go of your preconceptions about the Messiah, you would not only have known me, you would have known my father. You would, you would believe all that I've told you. And then he says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Th this, this picture of you're looking at the way, you're looking at your hope, you have the ability to know God because you've known me and your understanding of me is about to radically change and it's going to change your entire understanding of who God is. All these references to knowing, understanding, 
having a relationship, their identity with God was going to radically change. They were going to move from being disciples of Jesus to the sons of God because of what Jesus was about to do. Well, another disciple gets in on the act. Philip speaks up and he says, Lord, just show us the Father and it's enough for us. And Jesus said to him, I have been with you so long. I've been with you these last three and a half years and you still don't know me, Philip. You still don't get it. Peter doesn't get it. Thomas doesn't get it. Now you show that you don't get it. You know, he, he wants to show us the Father. Just, just give us a glimpse of God. And then Jesus says, Philip, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Don't you get it? Don't you understand it? How can you say, show us the Father? What would possess you to say that? You still don't understand who I am. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Don't you get that? After all these years and everything that I've taught you, that I and the Father are one. That's essentially what he's saying. He says, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me has, has spoken them. I do his works. I'm his son. We're united. Don't you get that yet? That I'm not just some guy that's been sent by God. I am God. I'm God in human flesh. I've come to do the will of my Father. And he, he keeps repeating this. He says, believe in me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Now, this is so hard for us to understand with everything we know about the scriptures and all the doctrine we have available to us, but these poor guys didn't get it at all. The idea that the Father is in him and he is in the Father, but Jesus is trying to illustrate that there is an unbroken union between he and God. And if you've seen me, you've seen God. You don't need a glimpse of God. You're looking at God. And that's part of what he wanted him to understand. And he says, believe that. Get it through your heads. Get it into your hearts and believe that I am who I say I am. See, here's what's interesting. He doesn't say believe in heaven. And that, that's so many times you'll hear people say, well, I believe there's a heaven. Well, great. But that's not going to get you there. He doesn't say believe in justification by faith alone. That's a wonderful doctrine. And we believe in it, but that's not what gets you in a relationship with God. It, it's not believe in salvation by grace and not by works. That's true. It's essential. But that's not what Jesus says. He says, believe that I and the Father are one. See, that's the key. And that's why John spends so much time from chapter 1 all the way to this chapter establishing that Jesus was truly God incarnate, God in human flesh. Because if he wasn't, we have no hope. This is the basis for all of our hope. And see, John is establishing once again Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And not only that, he's the one and only Son of God. And he has a unique relationship with God. Back in chapter 1, verse 14, John says, So the Word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. See, here's John writing years after Jesus' resurrection and ascension to a predominantly Gentile group of believers, converts to Christianity, and he's letting them know, believe. 
Believe who Jesus said he was. Believe who he proved he was. He is and was the son of God. See, his deity is what made him capable to accomplish the mission. If Jesus wasn't God, he was just a man. And if he was just a man, he was sinful. And if he was sinful, he couldn't die for you and I. This is huge. It's what made it possible for him to die on our behalf because his deity is what made him sinless. And it's his unity with the Father that provides the hope of our salvation, our sanctification, and our future glorification. Again, if he's not the Son of God, if he's not one with God, if he's not truly divine, we have no hope. But here's the, 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 the key that John's trying to get across is that through him, we're made one with God. See, that's what he's trying to tell the disciples, that you can't go with me now, but something incredible is going to happen. And you also are going to have an unbroken relationship with God. You're going to be adopted into his family and become his sons and daughters, just like we have been. See, that's what John is trying to get across to his readers because it's what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples. So as we move to the end, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these he will do because I am going to the Father. Now, I can only imagine what this sounded like to the disciples when Jesus says, you're gonna do greater works. Now, they had already healed and cast out demons, but this, this little phrase probably jazzed them to a certain degree that, man, this is, this is cool. We're going to do greater works than him. But notice the caveat, because I am going to the Father. I'm returning to the Father. And when that happens, and it can only happen if he goes to the cross, and if he's buried, and if he raises again, then you're going to be able and have access to power you've never seen before in your life. And you're gonna have this incredible relationship with God the Father as he works through you, just as he's worked through me. That's the promise Jesus is making. You're gonna do greater works, you're gonna do greater things, but you gotta believe. You gotta keep believing that I am who I said I, I am. See, here's Peter, and he's stuck about thinking about a location. Where are you going? Where are you going, Lord? You got Philip or Thomas, and he's concerned about what? Directions. I don't know how to get there. What's, what's the way? And now you got Philip, who all he wants to see is a glimpse of God. Well, just show us God. Give us a God sighting. See, what does he say? Show us the Father, and that's enough for us. See, what's amazing, and I love the fact that we get to see the disciples in all their glory and all their gore. The, the sad parts, the dirty parts, the, the parts that are embarrassing. But guys, that's us. We don't always believe. We don't always get it. They don't understand what Jesus is saying, and they had completely missed the point. Here, here's what they missed. See, Jesus was the destination. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He was the way. The only way to get there, the only way to have access to the Father and he was God, already made visible. Tom, uh, Philip didn't need a glimpse of God. He already saw God. But see, they missed it. But in just days, something amazing was going to happen, and they were going to get it for the first time in their lives. But here's the cool thing. In spite of their inability to understand what Jesus was saying, they hadn't missed out on the opportunity. The grace of God, the mercy of God, was still going to give them a chance because 
Jesus was going to go to the cross. That was his destination. And Jesus would open up a way, the way, through his death. See, he was going to do the will of his Father. He was going to complete the task he'd been given. And the Spirit was going to come and literally be the presence of God in those men's lives. See, if you've ever read the book of Acts, you know that when the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, those men were radically transformed. No longer afraid, no, no longer in hiding. They became bold. They became transparent. They became ambassadors for the gospel because they had God's presence living within them. And we'll look at that next week. See, they hadn't missed out on the opportunity. They still had the option of seeing what God was going to do in spite of their disbelief. But God's calling, Jesus is calling them to keep on believing. Don't give up. Darkness has come. The light's about to go out, but keep believing. Don't run. Don't vacate the premises. Don't give up hope because I'm not done yet and the Father's not done yet. So here's your questions I want you to wrestle with this week. And again, I know many of you are not meeting with other men. Um, you're just watching the videos online and that's great and I want you to keep doing that. But there's no reason you can't get with somebody else and, and talk about these questions. Dialogue with another human being, whether it's your wife, whether it's a son, whether it's a next door neighbor, a friend. Go over these questions with them and push against each other. Here's your first one. Why did Jesus emphasize his unity with the Father? And why should that matter to you and I? Why is the fact that he and God are one be so important to you and I in this day and age and in our lives? Secondly, do you think we can be guilty of making too much of heaven as our final destination while losing sight of our relationship with God? You know, I... I I look forward to eternity. I don't know what heaven looks like. I don't know what it's, the, the, the experience is going to be like. But you know what? I can, if I'm not careful, I can make too much of heaven and forget about the fact that it's really about my relationship with him. You know, Jesus is going to later say, this is eternal life, to know God and his son. That's the essence of eternal life, a relationship with God. And so I want you to read that verse in John 17, 3. And how does that statement, this is eternal life, his definition of eternal life, how does that change the way you think about eternal life? See, it's not some ethereal place where people sit on clouds and play harps. It's not about golden streets. It's not about your mansion. It's about a relationship with God the Father and God the Son, unbroken and total unity. Let me pray for us and then I'll see you guys in a week. Father, thank you for this lesson that you've given us through John and through his gospel, and I pray that you would continue to help us to understand all that you're trying to teach us through this incredible book. And Father, may we wrestle with these questions. May we wrestle with the statements of Jesus. May we believe that you're not done yet. Just like the disciples, we're going to have to wait until Jesus resurrected. We have to wait until he returns. And, and we have to believe that what he said is going to happen, that he is preparing a place and he is going to return. And that, Father, he's going to someday take us to be with him and with you. Help us to not stop believing. Thank you for these guys. Thank you for the opportunity for us to make these lessons available. Thank you for the team that records them and puts them out there. Father, we live in difficult days, but 
we have incredible opportunities to continue to tell the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I'm grateful. And we pray all this in his name, amen. I'll see you guys in a week.